0: Just spend the rest of the semester on Invisible Man. Um, so I hope you guys are finished. I hope you thought it was totally amazing, um, and. Um, an interesting, um, in interesting relations to um, the stuff we read before. One example of that um, is, although you won't know this because we did, because we, you saw only the end of "Song of Myself." Remember um, the what did you call it? Cheesy, Chris. The cheesy video, the PBS video. Uh, we saw of the guy reading the last couple of sections of Whitman's "Song of Myself." Um, if you've read Song of Myself or if you remember the video, do you guys remember what the last line of Song of Myself was? It's, um, if, um, if you do not find me, I stop for you one place, um, look for me another. If you do not find me, um, look under your um, um, boot bottoms or, or boot soles. Um, and then, um, if you do not find me one place, um, seek for me another I stop somewhere anyone remember the very end waiting for, you. waiting for you I stop somewhere waiting for you um that's the last line of song of myself um does anyone know the first line Jackson I celebrate, I celebrate myself and sing myself so um it's uh The reason he celebrates himself and sings himself um, is because he is exemplary. That's one of the things that he's going to um, claim, that he is exemplary of what it means to be an American, of any kind of American, any kind of citizen of the United States. Um, In the poem that we looked at, and in our section um, that we continued looking at, Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Um, that's a poem about becoming a poet by hearing the song of the bird and hearing the lamentation of the mockingbird. Um, and thinking that hearing those lamentations and singing them and thinking about them um, is what he wants to do as a poet. And it is what he does as a poet. And he sings and repeats and imagines and observes and echoes and amplifies. Um, all sorts of um, different, um, radically different, radically heterogeneous points of view, all of which, for him, is somehow what, it, what the United States means. His famous line is that the, these United States, the United States, are themselves the greatest poem. Um, the union of the states, the out-of-many-one Um, He is the one who is one of the many, and the idea is that being one of the many, um, the many being one nation, but a nation that is made of many, um, that's something that he is um, describing in himself, Song of Myself, but Mm -hmm. a song to be heard, to be listened to, to be repeated, to be... um, Altered and changed by others as well. Um, So the first line of Song of Myself is I stop is excuse me, I celebrate myself and sing myself. Um, It goes on. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume for every atom that belongs to me belongs as good to you. The end of Song of Myself is I stop somewhere waiting for you. Therefore, the first word of Song of Myself is I. I celebrate myself and sing myself. The last word a song of myself is you. I stop somewhere waiting for you. Anyone remember the first sentence of Invisible Man? It's an easy one. Maxie. I am an invisible man. Yes, I am an invisible man. Anyone remember the last sentence of Invisible Man? Famous and slightly mysterious or enigmatic last sentence. A good way to remember it is to open it and look. Yes, go for it. What is it? No, that's what writing is for. It's to remember things. That's why writing matters. So what is it? Who
1: knows but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you.
0: Who knows but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. So first word of invisible man is I. I am an invisible man. Last word of invisible man is you. Yes. No, I just thought, eh, why not notice that? Let's go through all of literature and see what works start with I and end with you. And then what we would see is really it's just uh, these are all expansions of I love you or I hate you, right? Um, I and you. Um, There's actually a great book by uh, Nicholson Baker. Do people know who he is? Um, Do you know what book I'm thinking of, Fritz? Um, I'm going to guess. I, that's not the book I'm thinking of, but that's a great book, too. Um, he has a book called You and I. That is the letter U, ampersand, and then the letter I. Uh, the U there is for, actually for John Updike, U for Updike, but also U for you, the person. Um, the person he's, he's writing into is Updike. Um, so that's a little factoid footnote for you, a sidebar. Um, all right, so yes, it is on purpose. Um, that is, and the question is, what you should think about is why that purpose? Why, um, why start a book with I, why end it with you? What does that mean in Invisible Man? Starting with I, ending with you. What does that last sentence mean? Can you read it again? Who knows? Who
1: knows, but that on the lower frequencies I speak for
0: you. Who knows, but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. Next.
1: Well, it kind of goes with the idea that he he can be anybody. So, in a way, he speaks for an experience that you could have.
0: Okay. Um, Why the lower frequencies? Or, hang on to that question. Lily.
1: I don't know the exact answer to it, but I can contextualize and say that... Sorry, I'm getting sick. Um, That he he says, I know you might get mad because it sounds like I'm rambling, but... um, and that it's a selfish thing of me to do that mm-hmm. this can speak to you is how I saw it but
0: Okay, although he doesn't say speak to you he says speak for you which is different Yeah.
2: Is it related to radio and the lower frequencies in radio Yeah The like lower frequencies are the ones like AM, FM and be AM and so local, the local radios and so he speaks like to the ones near him
0: Actually FM is, the lo- is local FM is, is um, high frequency, and therefore, um, this is stuff that you guys don't need to know anymore. In your, in your newfangled modern world, in our day, everything was wireless. Well, I guess everything's wireless for you, too. Um, the um, FM radio was always local, um, and it's um, sometimes called ultra-high frequency. Um, the lower the frequency, the farther um, a radio wave will travel um, without dissipating. So lower frequencies, if he's referring to radio waves, and it's hard to imagine that he isn't, if he's referring to radio, or at least partly referring to them, um, if he's referring to radio waves, he's referring to radio waves that can go a long distance, um, that can be heard far, far away. I think there's also a sense in lower there, though, um, Also, as um, not as loud, that is low versus um, low volume versus high volume, as well as the technical idea of low frequency versus high frequency um, radio waves. And the lower frequencies there would go with his being underground, that is lower below the surface of the ground. Um, It's low frequency waves that can actually go through the go through the earth. The higher the frequency, the easier it is to um, shield sound waves. But low frequency... The reason um, you hate the person um, who lives below you who's playing rock music and you can hear the bass thumping all night... um, maybe you're the person who's doing that, is the bass is the low-frequency sound that will go through walls. Um, The electric guitar, the um, tenor sax, all of that you may not hear, but you will hear the endless thumping of the bass. It's a low-frequency sound. Um, Ellison himself was both a jazz and a classical uh, musician. He got into the Tuskegee Institute after not getting in um, because they needed a trumpet player. And um, he could play the trumpet, so he was um, accepted not for his brilliance as a thinker and a writer and um, a um, um, person, a, a person of encyclopedic knowledge, which he had, but because he could play the trumpet. The first what? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> the first um, um, opening of Invisible Man where he's listening to Louis Armstrong and um, getting high and sort of being brought deep into um, the music that Armstrong is playing. Um, That stuff that Ellison knew a whole lot about, that stuff that Ellison um, was really, really interested in, and um, really, really interested in jazz, although he was somewhat ambivalent about jazz music. Um, But he thought it was an amazing and important um, form. And um, so there again, um, his knowledge of music is something that is at work there. Um, Yeah, Lily.
1: Cause I I think I read in the beginning that he was a musician, so like he he'll talk about like voices in his head and how he wants them to sing like in the middle of the of the um, like on the middle register and like in, not in discordance. Anymore. Right. Okay. Good. So he does a lot of that.
0: Though. Yeah, and there are a lot of songs and a lot of memories of songs. Um, a lot of reference to music. There's the jukebox. Um, in the bar that he goes to, um, and which is playing the song which is playing a song whose line is jelly, 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 jelly all night long, um, which is Ellison's line. That is um, it's not a real song, it's a song only in this fictional world. And um, he's feeling very ambivalent about all those things. Um, as he feels about everything, um, that is the invisible man. Um, and presumably his creator is um, feeling ambivalent about um, an amazing number of things. But a lot of it is a soundscape. So there's a kind of visual (coughs) sightscape. Um, They're all the things that he sees, but a lot of those things go dark um, in smoke, in nighttime, in um, various modes of blindness. Who's the first blind figure in Invisible Man? Yeah. The
2: next
1: to Bloodstone?
0: Yeah. Do you remember his name? Do you remember his name? <coughs>
1: no, I don't,
0: but I was thinking of a different Okay, so his do you remember his name, Hannah? Norton? No, Norton is the um white guy who is obsessed with his own daughter and then Jim Trueblood's story. Emerson. No, Emerson is in New York. He never he meets Emerson's son. Okay, just There are a lot of characters, and some of them, there seems to be a promise that they'll return and then they don't. Um, That's something that Ellison is very, very um, aware of. That is that um, a lot of what he's doing is riffing on standard fictional expectations. And those riffs are basically, if you were reading this, um, you may think, that what we're going to get is the kind of, I mentioned this before, the kind of convergence you get at the end of a story where all the major characters return at the end. But they don't. Um, Towards the end, he has a goal in, during the riot, and the goal is to get back to Mary's apartment to get back to the house of the person who took care of him and who was his, who sort of mothered him in New York and who um, gave him unconditional love. Um, he felt that he cheated her. He um, felt that he had left her without saying goodbye even though he left her money. Um, he took something from his room that belonged to her and that thing is now in his briefcase. Um, remember where he got that briefcase? From? From? at the beginning. Yeah, um, after the battle royal, he's given this gift of a briefcase. And now the briefcase contains everything that's important. One thing that we, I hope that you were expecting was going to be explained, and in fact does get explained, is the familiarity of the handwriting on the anonymous note that he gets. Um, when he reads the note, he says there's something familiar about the handwriting, but he couldn't place it. That, in a standard book, is a promise that eventually we'll find out. Um, and we do find out. Um, the famili- the, there's a reason the handwriting is familiar. That's one of the things that's in his briefcase. What else is in the briefcase? Do people remember? His high school. The? high school diploma. His high school diploma. What does he do with it? He burns it. He burns a whole lot of stuff in the briefcase. The letter, the high school diploma. What else is in the briefcase? Yeah. The, the paper doll that Clifton died for um, is in the briefcase as well. Um, what else? The little iron piggy bank, the Black Sambo piggy bank, which is um, so humiliating and so awful and which he has smashed to pieces but gathered up, along with all the money in it. He's a person who at some point has no money. He needs money, but he doesn't have any. Um, Why does he not have any cash in his wallet? Do you remember? What does he do with his last $5 bill? Yeah. Yeah. Sibyl. Sibyl. Sybil gets back to her apartment safely? Yeah, he gives the cab driver the, his last $5 bill in order to get Sibyl um, home um, safely and basically to rid himself of her and of her um, desire to be going around with him um, to face whatever emergency it is that he's supposed to be facing in Harlem. He doesn't know yet what it is. Um, What else is in the briefcase? It's one other important thing. Yeah. Is it
2: literature from
0: the Brotherhood? Yeah, there's literature from the Brotherhood, which is less important. But yes, there is literature from the Brotherhood. That too gets burned. The idea of burning it all underground, that's an important symbolic moment. If you're looking for symbolic moments in Invisible Man, There are tons of them. The problem is it's not clear how to read them or whether even reading them symbolically is right. There's one other thing. It's similar to a symbol very early on in the book, and he even notices the similarity that Bledsoe has on his desk. Do you remember what Bledsoe has on his desk that he notices, what is it? The chain. Yeah. So Bledsoe has a broken shackle on his desk. Um, he now has the link from the chain that who gave him? Uh, no. Yeah, um, who had been in um, who had been in prison for 20 years, um, and who now says he'll never get away, and he has. The, he's filed um, the chain link, um, and now he gives it to the Invisible Man, who at one point uses it as a kind of brass knuckle. Um, that is, that's some, that's um, a new possibility for what he can use it for. So essentially what you could say is the briefcase is a symbol, and in that last and amazing scene, it's also containing all the symbols of the novel. Um, but those symbols are being burned. Um, I hope you found that last scene. Um, I hope you found everything. Remember I told you to notice the word rind and Hart in the preface to Invisible Man? Um, why? How do rind and Hart come together at the end? Yeah.
1: The the identity of Mr. Reind Hart, the reverend who's also the gambler, who's also the runner, who's also the lover, and two other identities.
0: Yeah. So at the end there is the really um, strange and spooky ghost character, Reinhardt. And Reinhardt is a figure who never appears in the book. We never see Reinhardt. Um, we never meet Reinhardt. <laughs> we seem to meet everyone. Um, Ras, the Exhorter, Ras, the Extorter, Ras, the Destroyer. Um, every time we turn a corner, he's there. He's there somewhere. Um, Reinhardt is someone whom everyone in Harlem knows, um, of every type of, of person. Um, white cops know who Reinhardt is and want their um, their their bri- want to be bribed. They're on the take from him. Um, religious people know who he is because he's um, running a church. Um, he's a pimp. He's a numbers runner. He's everything. Everyone in Harlem knows who he is, except the Invisible Man has never met him, and he never appears in the book. Um, Is the Invisible Man Reinhardt? Why that connection? Why that um, interest and obsession with Reinhardt? I think in a way, I mean, it's really hard to say what's best in this book. Um, because so much of it is just so amazingly good and so much of it is so different that is it's not that he has one idea which he follows through throughout the book it's that every time something happens to the Invisible Man it's a different kind of surreal world that he lives in. Um, Not a version of the same surreal world he's been living in before but a different kind of surreal world that he's living in. Um (coughs) So, what about Reinhardt? Why is he so much part of the climax of the book? Yeah, Lily. The
1: theme of invisibility. Say it again. The theme of invisibility. Say more. Um, well, the gospel of this church has a lot to do with invisibility. I didn't quite understand that. <coughs> just what he preaches is invisibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, he is the antithesis to what the Brotherhood preaches, and that
0: frees. Um, he's kind of like the antidote to all of their logic for the Invisible Man. He uses it to combat their logic and to free himself of it. Okay, good. Um, so he's so the the gospel in his church is one which is the opposite of the Brotherhood. What is the Brotherhood? What do they want? What's their aim? Here's a spoiler. Why did why did. It matter. Why does it matter that it was Jack who wrote the letter? Why is that? Why is that a revelation? An important revelation. Yeah.
1: I Want to control how history unfolds?
0: Okay. Um, yeah. And, and they're like the puppeteers behind people's actions. hmm The community the individuals. Okay. Good. So one thing that we could say. Mm-hmm. Um, is it's, I like you using the word puppeteers and actually um, showing it. Um, why puppeteers? Why that word? Why did that come up for you? Um,
1: because the puppets don't know where it's coming from. They're just agents that, and they think they're, you know, executing things of their own volition, but they're not. It's all a design from people who believe themselves to be higher up.
0: hmm Okay, and how does that work symbolically in the book? In other words, why did you pick that as your metaphor, puppeteers?
1: Specifically what they do with him, um, using him to influence... They specifically say, we didn't hire you to think. We hired you to
0: speak. Yes. And and again, remember the last line of the novel is, who knows but that on lower frequencies, I speak for you. So if he's hired to speak, the question is, who is he speaking for? Um... Who is he speaking to? Who is he speaking for? Again, think of that last line, I speak for you. Um, Well, then to whom? If you use a you in a sentence, if you use the word you, um, then you're speaking to someone, to the you. Um, But if you say you're speaking for you, then it sounds like you're speaking to someone else. Um, Is there a way, just take that last phrase, I speak for you, um, and see if you can, see if you can unpack it. What's, (coughs) treat it as almost as a line in a poem. What is it in that last phrase that's both puzzling and deep? Not even the whole sentence, just that last phrase, I speak for you. You could contrast it or compare it or both with Whitman's I stop somewhere waiting for you. Um, where does Whitman stop? If that's the last line of his poem. Yeah? It's just that Whitman's already in, and
1: that you
0: have to really catch him. Yeah, and you catch him on the word you. I stop somewhere waiting for you. Yeah, he does stop somewhere, he stops at the end of his poem. Um, The poem stops right there. I stop somewhere waiting for you. And we, the you, appear right there in the last word where Whitman stops. So it's almost as though the form of the line is um, not making itself true, but the form of the line is symbolizing what it does. I stop somewhere, I stop on the word I stop on the word "you" because I'm waiting for you, and that's where I stop. When you get there, and you do get there, but what about I speak for you? It says that, and
1: then the novel ends. So there's no more speaking afterwards.
0: Okay, so there's no there's no more speaking afterwards, um, although there is an implication that this whole novel has been that speaking. Um, yeah. Okay, so I speak for you to understand me. Um, So you could make it into, the reason I'm saying this is that you should understand me. Um, That's a different speak for you than if you say, um, you know, who speaks for um, um, the defendant in this trial, and then a lawyer comes up and says, I speak for the defendant. It's not because the lawyer's then going to say, and you, you defendant, I'm saying this to you, it's, I'm speaking on the defendant's behalf. I, am rep- I represent the defendant. So that idea of speaking for is representation. That seems like it's, 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 I think they're both there, but that feels like it's a deeper version. Yeah. Yeah, I feel
1: like the whole I speak for you thing is supposed to be dark, because if he's an invisible man and he's speaking for you,
0: then you're not really being spoken for. Okay. Um, or you're being spoken for because you too are invisible. Mm-hmm. That is, if he says, I am an invisible man, I speak for you when I say that. When I say that, I speak for you. Maybe that's the two-line or the um, two-tweet version of the novel. I am an invisible man, and when I say that, I speak for you. Um, The idea might be something like, does this seem fair? Does this seem right? Does this seem like a fair um, summary of the novel? That um, anyone who makes themselves visible is not actually speaking for themselves but they are I'm pretending they're acting a part they're acting a role. Uh, a idea also do?
2: basically um, with the idea that you, have, uh, that you mentioned earlier that when you speak uh, when you hear your neighbor uh, so, you know, face, yes seeing your, your neighbor mm-hmm. and in this case the person does not see him and because he is invisible and so the person who, who hears that does not know that he is actually speaking to him because he's not seeing him in the same way that you don't know that your neighbor might actually be speaking to you Yeah. Because, and so that's what he says it's like who knows but that on the road which says speak for you is that you don't even know that he's speaking for you, you
0: yeah okay good yeah so in a way, what, what's happening is the, the um, two possibilities, Mexis and mine, that is that the four is for you to hear me and the four is because I represent you. Those aren't actually two possibilities but one. Um, that is that one way you could ask this is to say, there's a, is, is that you singular or plural? Is that a singular you or a plural you? Remember, we talked a little bit about the narratee earlier in this course, um, and we may have a chance to say more about, um, we will have a chance to say more about the narratee when we do the man who shot Liberty Valence if, at no other spot. Um, yeah?
1: I'd say that it could be both, the same way that Reinhardt is a bunch of people. Nice. Like one person. So he's speaking to a person, and you're supposed to, the narratee is a single person, but that single person can be any permutation of an individual.
0: Okay, good. So it's, um, there, it, one way of putting this is to say that, um, there are ways, this is something actually logicians are interested in, that in English, the word any and the word all are logically equivalent. If you say something like, um, all swans, um, sing before they die, um, then what you're doing is making a claim about swans in general. But that's a claim that can also be made as every swan sings before it dies or any swan before it dies sings. Um, So any is a singular word. That's why we have the word anyone. Um, And we say, um, or... um, Is there anything, not are there any things, but is there anything um, that's bothering you? Um, Is anyone um, going to write their final paper on invisible man? Um, But when you say any, as a logical claim, any person at this university has to be very smart, is the same thing as saying all persons at this university have to be very smart. So that place where singular and plural overlap, um, that's always an interesting thing, when singular and plural overlap like that, when we don't make a hard and fast distinction between them. And I think that the I is clearly singular. Who knows that on lower frequencies, I speak for you, but if I am speaking for you, then I am speaking for as part of many. I speak for you, so when I speak, I am speaking as I and you. And there already you get the plurality. Even if the you is singular, you get the plurality. Um, I speak for you, whoever you are. I speak for anyone reading this, that's singular, um, which means I speak for everyone. Or all people reading this, which is plural, and that's part of the point of the book is the relation of the singular to the plural. What about the race of the you? Do is that you? Is there an implicit idea that the you is white, or is there an implicit idea that the you is black, or is that not an issue, or is it an issue but intentionally left ambiguous? Those there are other possibilities, but those seem to be the four main ones. This is let me okay, so let me say again about the narrative, just one sec. Let me say again about the narrative. Um, it is frequently the case. Sometimes very explicitly, sometimes less so. But it's very, very much um, a part of what Ellison is thinking about in his um, imagining where Invisible Man fits into the tradition of great literature. It is frequently the case that there is an explicit narrative to a work of literature. Um, to take a famous example, um, which I mentioned before briefly Balzac and Pere Goriot, which is his 19th century rewriting of King Lear. It takes place in Paris in um, the beginning of the 19th century. Pere Goriot, you've read it? Have other people read it? Um, so t- do you remember how it begins? 15 years ago? How old were you? <laughs> Okay. Um, You were 26, 15 years ago? I was, too. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: You're 26 now. So you were 11. Okay. Um, So the rest of you, when you're 11, you should read it. It's great. Um, In Goriot. Um, Balzac or his narrator, because it's not him, says, Um, okay, dear reader, um, you're probably picking up this book sitting in your comfortable armchair in front of a fire thinking, oh, I'm going to read a real potboiler now. I can hardly wait. Um, and consider, dear reader, as you see your white hands, um, holding the book next to the black ink, um, that in fact this book is not going to be that sort of a book. And so what you could say is Balzac is, um, and Hardy will do similar things um, with the gender of the reader, um, Balzac, you could say, is making a racialized assumption that his readers are all white. And therefore, when he talks about their hands holding the book as they read, um, he's thinking of those hands as being white hands holding the book. Now, remember the end of the Du Bois um, uh, chapter that we read for last time, where Du Bois has that famous stirring moment when he says that he reads Shakespeare and Shakespeare doesn't avoid him, that there's no racism in his relation to Shakespeare. Or in his relation to Balzac is the second example that he gives. And then his third example, do people remember that paragraph? Did you guys read it? I mean, I know Invisible Man was long and maybe reading another 10 pages was uh, 10 pages too much. But how many, I'll do the cough thing. How many people read uh, the Du Bois? (laughs) Wow, first, it's the longest time in this class ever that someone hasn't coughed. Um, All right, let me dig up and read you the very stirring last paragraph. You really should read it because there are um, a lot of things. It's great, it's a seminal and important, um, the whole book. Um, The Souls of Black Folk is a really, really important book. But this chapter especially is a seminal and important document of American literature and American um, political exhortation. Um, And it's uh, not something to come out of this class not having read. Or to go into an exam, for example, not having read. I mean, just to take examples at random. Um, Let me just find it, because I do want to read you the very famous last paragraph. Um, I sit with Shakespeare, and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas. Um, The color line is a phrase that Du Bois made famous, it wasn't his, it was originally Frederick Douglass's, Um, but Du Bois made it a famous and really important concept in um, American uh, thought and American politics. Um, across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas. The white line that um, is in the first, that is constantly repeated in the first part of *Invisible Man*, is probably Ellison's allusion to the idea of the color line. There's the white line, which is separating Mr. Norton from. The um, narrator, f- and especially from uh, as he imagines the likes of Jim Trueblood, *The Golden Day*. By the way, just to give you to tell you more about this, um, um, Ellison was very um, was extremely learned. He grew up, actually, literally grew up in um, a public library, um, not figuratively but literally, um, in an upstairs room, and he read nonstop and. Um, but he was also very, very clear that, with very rare exceptions, he was going to let the illusions strike people rather than um, simply saying, oh, look, here's what I've read, here's what I've read, here's what I've read. The one exception is when he compares, when he explicitly compares um, what he's doing in Invisible Man to Joyce, when he explicitly compares it to, um, to the book A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, Stephen Dedalus at the end of that book, I know some of you have read it, says, um, I go forth to, um, um, to forge the uncreated conscience of my race. And by that, Stephen means either the Irish or he means humanity in general. And he again, he means both. Um, the Invisible Man, of course, picks up on the word race there. Um, and thinks about what it would mean to forge the uncreated conscience of his race. And then he starts rhyming on it and talks about the um, the uncreated conscience of his face. He mentions that this was stuff that he learned in Woodbridge's class. Do you remember this? And what we find out, this is, this is picking up on something that we talked about last week, um, when we're reading that is um, Woodbridge sounds like, a, like an old New England name. Um, there's a Woodbridge Hall at Harvard, for example, and I'm pretty sure that's why he picked the name. But we find out um, about three or four paragraphs into Woodbridge's account of a portrait of the artist of a young man that Woodbridge is black too. Um, and that's supposed to be a little bit surprising. That is, we're supposed to think here is a white professor teaching white literature to these aspirational black students at a Tuskegee-like place, Um, but he's not. Um, He, too, (coughs) is um, someone like Ellison, who is um, interested, um, obsessed with, immersed in, all literary traditions in the same way that Du Bois is as well. So I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. Yeah.
1: Is colored line supposed to mean like like the lines that they're writing? Like, all, like I know what it means, what you're saying it means, but like is that also what it's supposed to mean? That's
0: a nice idea, yeah. Um, so that is the idea that um, you can take the word line and turn it into a literary word. It's, that's not what it means for Du Bois or for Douglass. Um, but it may um, start meaning that um, when you start putting it in a literary context. Um, yeah, that's a really <coughs> nice idea. Um, one sly thing that Du Bois is doing here, by the way, in um, mentioning um, Shakespeare and then Balzac and Dumas is that Dumas was actually partly black. Um, And um, so in a list of great black French authors, Dumas would be in that list, Um, although most people didn't know that. Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers... um, and that's that's um, not a well-known fact, and it's so it's a kind of sly thing that Du Bois is doing there. That is, he's imagining at least some of his readers thinking, oh yes, look how much he likes white authors, that's great. Um, but no, they're not all white authors that he's describing. The whole point is they're not. Yeah? Actually, Duhal didn't
2: try the previous years. He had a, a, a ghostwriter who wrote most of his books... And he wrote in his will uh, that at his death, and at, uh, after his death, and after the professor's death, uh, and he would be made public, and that his ghostwriter would be buried at the Pellacher's in Paris. Huh. So, on the tomb of his ghostwriter, you have all the names of, uh, of the books that he wrote for. You know.
0: Really? It's quite an amazing <laughs> <laughs> that, that That is amazing. Um, I certainly didn't know that, and I'm sure Du Bois didn't. Um, Huh, I have to look into that. Um, But at any rate, this Dumas is the one who did write them. Um, And um, so um, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls from out the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars. Again, I hope you hear how that imagery is not unlike some of the the imagery in Invisible Man. From out the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius, and what soul I will. And they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So, wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Um, he's used the word veil earlier as the veil that separates um, African Americans from European Americans. Um, the word veil is one to notice um, all over invisible. Man, um, There are veils everywhere, starting with a veil that is um, on the face half-lifted or maybe half-descended on the face of the slave in the sculpture that um, shows the founder holding a veil over the face of a kneeling slave halfway up. But we don't know which way it's going. We don't know whether the founder is veiling the slave who was about to be free and um, and covering the slave up again so that he won 't have his full freedom or whether it 's actual liberation so so um, here again, Ellison is thinking about Du Bois. So when with truth I dwell above the veil, is this the life you grudge us, O knightly America? Nightly with a K. Is this the life you grudge us, O knightly America? Is this the life you long to change into the dull red hideousness of Georgia? Are you so afraid lest peering from this high Pisgah between Philistine and Amalekite we sight the promised land? So that's how it ends. Um, there's tons and tons tons more to say about this, but I want to tell you one um, thing that... Well, I was, I was actually going to tell you that the Golden Day, this is another f- interesting factoid. The Golden Day, which is the um, saloon-slash-cat um, house where he brings Mr. Norton and has to bring him in, um, the Golden Day is the name that was given to the time of Emerson Thoreau... And Whitman by the great social sociologist Lewis Mumford, whom Ellison <laughs> read in the 1920s, and Mumford is always talking about the golden day in American history. So that golden day is um, somewhat less golden um, in the scene in which that play, in which the golden day is the saloon and house of prostitution. Um, The, if you look at Ellison's manuscript, not that I've looked at it, but I'm told, if you look at at Ellison's manuscript for um, Invisible Man, over and over and over again on the manuscript, he writes a reminder for himself in five words of what he's doing in the novel. And that reminder, and I think this is really crucial and deep, that reminder Um, for what he's doing in the novel is he says that the trajectory, always to keep in mind, is the trajectory from purpose to passion to perception. Purpose to passion to perception. That's a definition or that's a um, reformulation of... Aristotle on tragedy. That is, someone tries to do something, that's purpose. And then things get emotionally extremely wrought when that purpose is balked and thwarted, and its distortions are either imposed upon it or made known, and eventually we reach perception. And um, perception isn't solution. But perception is something like seeing the truth. Purpose to passion to perception. I think that's an amazing um, uh, progression, and one that Ellison was keeping in mind all the time. Purpose to passion to perception. Um, I wanted to show you, just to show you, um, and then I'll let you guys go. Oh, sh- Oh no, there it is. Um, this painting by William H. Johnson of, um, from the 1943 race riot in Harlem um, that he painted at the time, this is the same riot that um, Ellison, or that the Invisible Man, it's, it's the same riot that Ellison is talking about. It's not the riot that, that the Invisible Man is talking about because we don't know when the novel is set. If you, if you um, try to research when the novel is set, a lot of people assume it's in the 1930s. However, the language is 1940s and even 1950s language. Um, zoot suits and um, the word hipster and so on, those are not 1930s words. That's mid-1940s slang and later. Um, and he wants it purposely to be in an indeterminate time. There was a race riot in 1943, a little bit like um, what happens in the novel, which is that it's the death of Clifton, and um, who is killed by a policeman, shot by a policeman when he's de- when he's defenseless. Thank goodness those days are over, right? Um, when he's defenseless, he's shot by a policeman. This eventually leads to the riot. What happens in 1943, was there was a woman who um, got into a justified fight at a hotel. That is, with a a fight where she was demanding her money back at a hotel. A cop um, tried to arrest her for disorderly conduct. A white cop tried to arrest this black woman for disorderly conduct. A black soldier and his mother um, were in the hotel at the time, and they tried to intervene to help her, the cop eventually shot the soldier, just wounded him a little bit, he was okay, but the rumor quickly went out that he'd been killed. And so there was a riot that lasted a couple of days. Um, Six people were killed in the riots in Harlem. Um, Ellison covered the riot for the New York Post. Um, he reported on it for the New York Post. So he was there and on the scene. Um, this painting, which is called Moon Over Harlem, is about the riot. And what you will see is a bunch of policemen who, have, who are holding a black woman upside down. Um, and um, she's bleeding. They may be trying to shake money out of her. Here is a wounded person being arrested, or at least a person who's smeared with blood being arrested. Here is a person who might be dead. Um, This is a little bit, this is a contemporary, amazing visual painting. Um, William Henry Johnson, the painter, was originally from uh, South Carolina and then lived in Harlem, Um, a little bit like The Invisible Man. Um, It's a great painting. It's worth um, looking up. It says 1944. It's probably late 43. And um, one of the things to notice is, as an invisible man, they're black policemen. Um, white and black. Um, And that's, in a way, encapsulates the most important thing about Invisible Man, which is what the novel is about. It has a moral. And the moral is, don't use people. And the thing is, everyone in Invisible Man uses other people, including the narrator. Um, And the reason people use other people is that they have been used themselves, and the only way that they can get out of the situation that they're in when they have been used is to use others. The most obvious example is the Brotherhood's use of the Invisible Man, but then notice what that means is the Invisible Man, in order to defend himself, uses Sybil to try to figure out what the Brotherhood is up to. So it's not that the Invisible Man is exempt from that moral, but the moral is don't use people. When blacks become policemen in The Invisible Man, when they become policemen in this painting, they're being used by the powers that be in order to put down rebellion, to put down protest. Anyone can be used, and everyone uses other people. That's the tragedy that Invisible Man is about. And the perception, that's what we perceive at the end. But if he speaks for us, we shouldn't use him to speak for us. We should hear what he is saying in Mexi's version of for us, speaking for us to understand, so that we too get that perception. All right, Waiting for Godot, Wednesday. Um, The whole thing, it's a short play. I mean, it's not that short, but it's short compared to King Lear. Sorry? I was drinking a